answering the question of who is Christ is certainly a problem for religious leaders. Uh, it wasn't a problem for Christianity as she tried to address uh, and did address her issue. Uh, it wasn't a problem for Peter and John as they healed a man at the steps of the temple. But we've been looking at a sermon where Peter is responding to a group of Jews who did not understand who Christ was and were having difficulty accepting the fact that a man was healed in the name of Christ. And so they rejected Christ as the Messiah. And Peter is essentially giving them one more chance here in Acts 3. Now we've already noticed that rejecting the evidence of Christ in the past will keep a person from seeing God in the present. And we saw how our own sin blinds us uh, to seeing the reality of God intervening. And that brings us to the rest of our passage here in chapter 3. Let's all stand as we read this section. While he, the man who was healed by Peter and John, clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? And why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who've come after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Father, as we dive into this message, it's easy to see these words as detached from us, applying to a people 2,000 years ago and having no application for us today. But Lord, we know that that's not true. We know that your word is indeed powerful and it's able to work in our hearts today. And I ask that you'll do so with this passage. Open up our eyes, particularly, Father, for those who maybe are on the fence, not sure about who Christ is. I pray that today would be a day in which your spirit shows them the reality 
of Jesus as the Messiah and Son of God. For those maybe, Lord, who've had an experience with you, they've walked with you, they believed you, and now they're just kind of leaving it by the side. I pray that you would draw them to yourself and show that who Jesus is is inviting us into an active relationship and that uh, today they might realize that they can draw near to you and have times of refreshment. And so would you work in each of our hearts and speak to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We see, starting with verse 17 and 18, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. We see here that rejecting the voice of the Old Testament hinders our understanding of Christ. Peter calls his fellow Jews brothers, not in the sense that they are believing in Christ kind of brothers, spiritual brothers, but just that they are fellow Jews. And he offers hope to them even though they were party to the crucifixion. Now we know and I think we can understand that there is no forgiveness for people who categorically and irrevocably reject Christ. But Peter acknowledges that these Jews here in Jerusalem rejected Christ out of ignorance. I find this to actually be very merciful on the part of God and Peter. Jesus himself had recognized the ignorance of those who were crucifying him when he had prayed for their forgiveness in Luke 23, 34. You might remember when he said, Father, forgive them for what? They know not what they do. They don't know what they're doing. And Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 2 that when he came to the Corinthians, he came with nothing but Christ. He didn't come with trying to impress them with a bunch of wisdom or fancy speech. And he says in verse 8, none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, speaking of Christ and the gospel, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They did not understand. Now, I think it's important for us to understand that Peter is not condemning every Jew who ever walked the face of the earth. The Roman Gentiles were also culpable, because we know they played part in the crucifixion. But Peter is addressing the Jews in Jerusalem, and specifically those who were actively or even passively participants in Jesus' death. In Acts 13, 27 through 28, we see when Paul was at Antioch, which, by the way, was about 300 miles north of Jerusalem, he went to a synagogue and he addressed Jews. And notice he doesn't condemn every Jew. He just condemns those in Jerusalem when he says, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, that being Christ, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And so even the Jewish leaders led others astray by their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. But how exactly did the Jews act in ignorance? They had the testimony of the Old Testament 
Scripture and the prophets who pointed to Jesus as the Messiah, and they did not recognize him. The Jews did not know what they were doing in making Jesus suffer, but God knew what he was doing because the suffering of Christ was bound up in the divine purposes and sovereignty of God. God used the rejection of the Jews to accomplish the redemptive plan. Understand this, the death of Christ did not catch God by surprise where he said, oh shoot, I didn't want that to happen. It wasn't that way at all. In his sovereignty, the death of Christ was not only foretold by the Old Testament prophets, but ultimately allowed by the hand of God. Jesus declared in John 10, for this reason the Father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own, of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And Peter declared in Acts 2, verse 32, that Jesus was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. It's really amazing. One of the greatest testimonies to the identity of Jesus is the Old Testament. You know, the last book of the Old Testament was written 450 years before the time of Christ. And the Old Testament contains over 300 prophecies that were fulfilled in the life of Christ. For instance... You could include Isaiah 50, verse 6, that speaks of the beard of Christ being pulled out and his back being whipped. And we read of that fulfillment in Matthew 27, verses 26 through 31. We we, we, uh, read of a prophecy, we weed of a prophecy, all right? Elmer Fudd also prophesied in the Old Testament, all right? we read of, 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 the, of a prophecy in, in Micah 5.2 of the very town that Jesus would be born in. That's amazing. That was, that was written in 730 B.C. And, of course, it was fulfilled in Matthew 2, verses 1 through 6, where we read about it. We read of the crucifixion in Psalm 22, 1,000 years before the time of Christ. And what do we read about a crucifixion? This was long before Rome had even adopted crucifixion. And it gives specific details about his hands and feet being pierced, about no bones being broken, which was quite amazing because that was the normal, normal course with a Roman crucifixion. And there was even a detail given about how his, his garments would be divided up as they would cast lots to take them. Amazing. And what do we find? Every one of those things happened during the crucifixion. Luke 23, verses 33 through 34, talk about his garments being divided up with lots. And John 19, 33, his legs were not broken. Again, even though it was common practice of the Romans to do that at crucifixion, it would, what it would do is, is hasten up a man suffocating as he tried to breathe and pull himself up. 
And then in John 20, 20, Jesus at the post-resurrection appearance showed his pierced hands to the disciples. It's amazing. See, rather than, rather than disqualifying Jesus as the Messiah, his suffering and death validated him as the Messiah because the prophets revealed specific details hundreds of years before right down to the hairs on his head. Amazing. And his captors and executioners, they thought they got rid of Jesus, but in fact, it was all a part of God's sovereign plan. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Peter gives hope. He gives hope to them that they can repent. And to repent means to to change your mind. And in the spiritual context, it means a, a change that abandons former dispositions, and leads to a a new path, a a new self. And specifically, these Jerusalem Jews need to change their mind about Jesus. They need to acknowledge him as the Messiah, God's son. They need to see his sacrifice as a covering for their own sins. And Peter recounts what would happen, what the fruit would be if they actually repented. First is that their sins are forgiven. He says, your sins may be blotted out. Imagine how great the grace of God that he would forgive the very ones who killed his son. Imagine that. That is really quite unbelievable if it weren't for the knowledge that we have about who God is. No human has forgiveness like that. We read in Colossians 2.13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses. Just like Christian was saying, there's a shame that comes with certain sins that we think that God just cannot forgive. Does God forgive adultery? Can God forgive rape? Mm. Can God forgive racism? Can God forgive murder? Yes to every one of those. And God put all sin upon Christ who paid the debt. Aren't you glad? I'm glad. I've, I've experienced the shame of my sin And I'm glad he's paid the penalty. Sins are forgiven. Next, we see that times of refreshing will come. Notice that this refreshing has with it enjoying, he says, the the presence of the Lord. It has the idea of, of relief and encouragement to have our health and our spirits refreshed. If the Jews were to accept Christ as the Messiah, they would find such refreshments. You see, the old legalism practiced by the the Pharisees and and the Sadducees knew little about refreshing the spirit. And if the truth be known, 
There are many Christian groups who struggle with really enjoying the Christian life. They name Christ, but when it comes to truly being refreshed, they know little of it. All the works and self-righteousness in following rules is like being shackled by a never-ending stirring of the soul that drives but never satisfies. What God offers in Christ is genuine refreshment, freedom, safety. See, there are a lot of Christians, they don't want that kind of grace. They want the security that comes from legalism. Just tell me what to do, I'll stay within the lines. But grace is scary. Because that means I have to live in a community with other people who may not agree with me, who do things I don't think they should do. And it tests us. That's much harder to live. Many believers see the Christian life as some tight-fisted attempt to stay within the lines of some man-made doctrinal system or some subcultural Christian code, just depending what part of the country you live in or what denomination you're a part of. They all have their different lists. And if you don't play by the rules, you're shunned. And those who do play by the rules dare not step outside of them for fear of rejection. And that's the slavery part of it. It's a religious slavery. It's not refreshing whatsoever. And so what Peter was offering to the Jews was something completely different than what they had experienced. It was freeing. Dare we imagine that our walk with God could be marked by joy and freedom? See, we are free from from gauging whether other Christians have been through those steps have believed those five points, practice that sign gift, don't drink or do that thing or don't do that thing. That's not the essence of the Christian life. What Christ offers is a relationship with God that restores and refreshes the soul. And if you're in bondage to that kind of self-righteousness, that is not the Christian life. The psalmist tells us, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you have not abandoned my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see, and that's, that's written by a man who had hit bottom, who had had a lot of experience with sin, but God had restored him. And that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven might, must receive until the time of restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. We have to remember the Jewish audience Peter is speaking to. 
and what had been previously promised to them by God. Because what they are looking forward to is a kingdom, a future kingdom that they would have a part in. They wanted a Messiah to come and to reign. And Christ would come in an appointed time to fulfill the promises of a kingdom. And every Jew understood this. Every Jew looked forward to this. But Peter was saying Christ would ascend to heaven and then would come back to fulfill these promises. Now let us remember, when Peter's saying this, the church is already in existence. Christ has been crucified, buried, risen, ascended. And he's talking about something that has not yet happened. And it's Israel being restored. There would be a restoration when Israel repents. Isaiah 65, 17 and 66, 22 speak of a, a new heaven and a new earth. And the prophet spoke about a millennial kingdom. And Matthew 19, 28 speaks about Christ sitting on a throne and others ruling with him. What Peter is offering to the Jews is a promise of them participating in the earthly rule of Christ. And if we're to take the lens back, what we're seeing is a future secured for those who put their trust in Christ. If the prophets had spoken hundreds of times about the the first coming of Christ and those prophecies have been fulfilled, then how in the world could we doubt what has been promised to us in the future? Christ was the one to fulfill all of these messianic hopes of the Jews. And then we read, Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. All the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who come after him also proclaim these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. There is either judgment or there is blessing. In verses 22 through 26, Paul takes this sermonic lens and he focuses on Moses, Samuel, the prophets that came after, Abraham, and a covenant, something all the Jews would be familiar with. Why? They esteemed the Old Testament but they did not listen to it. They had evidence of the Messiah in Christ right before them, and they ignored it. Peter says, if you ignore this warning, these words about Jesus, you can expect a certain judgment. And the Jerusalem Jews are not alone. Imagine the arrogance of any man today who turns a blind eye to God's revelation, whether it's the Old Testament or the New. It seems to be fashionable today to ignore the Old Testament by basically relegating it into oblivion 
with inane arguments about interpretation and theocracies because we find the statement simply too demanding. They're just too hard. And we ignore this to our own peril. I certainly think there is a way to interpret that that does not shackle us as we see the fulfillment in Christ. But there's an arrogance that comes of ignoring what God has said, setting it aside. We do this at our own peril. On January 28, 1986, NASA was planning to launch the space shuttle Challenger from the Kennedy Space Center, a mission that we know included the school teacher, Krista McAuliffe. What we don't know are some of the details that this launch had been delayed several times. And on the night before the launch date, NASA held a long conference call with engineers from Morton Thiokol, the contractor that built the Challenger's solid rocket motors. Alan McDonald, who was one of the Thiokol engineers, on the day of the launch, it was unusually cold, which concerned McDonald, and he feared that the company's O-rings in the Challenger's big joints wouldn't operate properly at that temperature. See, they had only been tested at the lowest temperature of 53 degrees, and he recommended that the launch be postponed again. But NASA officials overruled McDonald and requested that, quote, responsible Morton Thiokol official should sign off on the decision to launch. McDonald refused to sign that request, so his boss did. The next morning, McDonald and millions of people around the, glo- around the globe watched after a mere 73 seconds into flight, the shuttle burst into flames. And after the accident, a review showed that the O-rings failed to hold their seal in the cold temperature. In other words, there were some people in the organization that foresaw exactly what would happen, and they were ignored. So why did NASA push on? Alan McDonald claims that NASA fell prey to the oldest and most basic sin of all, pride. He said, and I quote, NASA had become too successful. They'd gotten by for a quarter of a century and had never lost a single person going into space. They had rescued the Apollo 13 halfway to the moon when part of the vehicle blew up. Seemed like it was an impossible task, but they did it. So how could this cold O-ring cause a problem when they had done so much over the past years to be successful? All this success gives you a little bit of arrogance you shouldn't have. But they hadn't stumbled yet. And they just pressed on, end quote. You know, there is nothing, I think, that creates more arrogance than presupposed religion and a presupposed religious system. It could be some denominational or man-made system. For the Jews, it was a version of God that blanked out Jesus. But Moses has spoken, 
And under the law of Moses, on the Day of Atonement, Israel was to listen to God's instruction, or it said in the law that they would be cut off. God had offered forgiveness. You just don't turn away from that. So how much more severely will God judge those who turn away from Christ in the new covenant and reject him? Moses himself pointed to the way of Christ when we read in Deuteronomy 18.15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Hebrews 2.3 asks the question, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And Jesus himself said in John 5, 45 through 46, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But Moses was not the only one who foretold the coming of Christ, the Messiah. For all the prophets were united in their witness of Jesus. And Peter says, from, from Samuel till now. And to those who would listen, it had been plainly spoken. Jesus said in Luke 24, 44 through 47, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture, and he said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins shall be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. God positioned the Jews, you see, to be blessed by him via a covenant that started with Abraham. And the prophecies and that covenant have not changed. They have not been abrogated. Is God a covenant breaker? Absolutely not. See, the covenant that God made with Abraham was one-sided. It wasn't, oh, now, Abraham, if you do all this, then I'll do this. There was only one person in the covenant, and that was God. God made the covenant. Abraham and all of his descendants would be the recipients. The point is, these things are still intact. And the Jews could still be recipients of God's goodness and blessing if they receive Christ as the Messiah and believe in his name. And that lame man that was healed on that day in Acts 3... That was another revelation on top of everything else that had been said to them to show them that what the prophet said was true, that this man was healed in the name of Jesus. He is indeed the Messiah. If there is any group that you would think would listen to the prophets, it would be descendants of the prophets. And God is giving them first crack at Jesus. It's what Paul said in Romans 1.16, to the Jew first. And then also to the Greek. And some Jews failed to recognize him. But right here, right now, Peter was giving them a choice. God raised up his servant Jesus from the grave to put an exclamation point on the fact that he indeed was the Messiah. And God sent Jesus to bless them and to extend the covenant of Abraham that they honored so much. 
My dear friends, what does this mean for us today? Let there be no doubt that Jesus is the author of life. And if we but open our hearts to him, that we too can find refreshment. We too can find security. We can't just blithely sit and think that this has no application for us, that this was for yesteryear, and think we're immune to this meaning. All you got to do is have a conversation with a person on the street, and people are searching for meaning, and we need to make a beeline for Jesus. See, to the person who has rejected him, there is hope here, and maybe you've rejected him in the past. There is hope if you'll repent if you'll change your mind about Jesus. And to the person who's taken him for granted, know that he knocks at the door of your heart and he invites you to have intimate fellowship with him once again. Let's pray.